0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Toby Green about his book, A Fistful of Shells, West Africa from the Rise of the Slave Trade to the Age of Revolution. Toby, welcome back to New Books Network. Mark, it's great to be here again. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Okay, um, so I'm a historian based in the United Kingdom. I teach at King's College London. I teach in the departments of history and Spanish, Portuguese, and Latin American studies. I trained in area studies, in African studies, uh, what was then the Centre for West African Studies uh, at the University of Birmingham, which was one of the oldest centres for training uh, people in African studies here in the UK. Uh, My my advisor of my PhD was the Brazilian uh, historian of Songhai and Timbuktu, Paulo Moraes Farias, Uh, and he is one of the few people in this country who really works on, well, the transition between what you would call medieval and early modern african history or uh ancient africa if you like uh timbuktu and Songhai, and so that really is one of the ways in which i i became or began to become interested in and trained in uh in the history of uh, pre colonial africa which i explore in this book
0: i i think that's a you know the way you framed it, it's very interesting from the standpoint of approaching this book in particular, because we talk about medieval and early modern, and those are very much Western terminologies and One of the things that I took from reading your book is just how 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 artificial they are and how they really impose western you know concepts and 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 ways of thinking about African history that aren't entirely appropriate
1: well, correct I mean you know uh, medieval. You know, they're, they're categories which makes life easy for historians, you know, and uh, is that really something that uh, people writing history should have in the forefront of their mind? I would say probably not. You know, they're categories which also, you know, can make sense in terms of people coming into a to a university and beginning to study in some more depth. But but they're very artificial and uh, they impose these categories which come from. Uh, European history. Medieval is fundamentally a category which derives from feudalism, the relationship between, uh, as a, so a particular idea of of land, of the relationship between uh, seigneurs and tenants, uh, serfs and all of that, uh, which is obviously completely inappropriate to any other part of the world, frankly. <laughs> um, and early modern, well, I mean, the book, this book's main focus is what is generally called the early modern period. I guess one of the interesting things about that l- concept for this book is that. One of the things the book shows is that towards the end of that period, maybe it's not so inappropriate to use the same term to describe different parts of, of the Atlantic basin because they became so deeply interconnected, um, and 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 that in, those interconnections are part of the history of the rise of modernity. Uh, yeah, it is clearly a Europe. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about it as a category, though, is that when you say early modern you think European history, or you think North American history, uh, and you might think colonial uh, Latin American history, but you never think African history. Um, And so that's one of the things that the book explores really. What was it that led you to
0: write a book like this? You've uh, contributed, uh, you know, numerous books to the field before, including uh, your previous one, which was on the transatlantic slave trade. What led you to focus upon West Africa in, in the way that you did within the within kind of this, this globalization context?
1: Well, a number of things, really. I mean, it's funny to. Answer the question, how do you come to the idea of a book? And there's not really any particular one thing. Uh, In the first place, there is the sense that um, this is, in general, a hugely underexplored, under-researched field, which which, uh, also is also hugely contentious in numbers of ways because of the sources, because of the positionality of the author, uh, because of the way in which uh, prejudice has generally been associated with the reception of African history in the West. Uh, And at the same time, there is also another important context, I think, which is the increasing way in which many people who train as historians of pre-colonial Africa, particularly in the US, actually, in in the 90s, uh, and in the early 2000s have become more what you might call Atlantic historians. They're focusing on the diaspora uh, and the relationship between Africa and the Americas. And, and it's kind of Africa gets left out of that, of that story more and more. And 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 that's, that's quite, that's very problematic. Uh, uh, so that's one aspect a sort of awareness of the need to have a focus on Africa. And also, I think um, beyond that, in terms of my approach here, that was something which came out of my research and, Um, And it wasn't something where I sat down after finishing my previous book, which was published in 2012, and said, right, I'm going to start this now. Um, It was something which came out of several different things, really. First, researching the archives. As I write in the introduction, the discovery of more and more material related to currencies, related to the economic relationships between African uh, traders and, and rulers and Atlantic traders. And the way in which this was, as we know, a trade, what were the economic impacts of that and how did those impacts uh, relate to the nature of West African societies and their transformations in this period? Uh, so that was something which came out of the research. Um, and then I think more more deeply than that, it came out of the fact, you know, I'm uh, I'm a historian who's. Uh, research training in in west africa didn't begin in the library in the archive but began in the field uh, you know i i i spent a number of years uh living and working in uh, west africa in a variety of contexts before i became began training as a historian uh and and some of that emerges in the book in fact and in fact i write about some of that in the book and the, uh, you know there, there is this sense somehow that historians are supposed to be objective they're supposed to be s- library scholars um whereas And this is a very misleading, I think, and false, uh, frankly, uh, representation of what the work of the historian is, because even if you're in a library or or an archive doing a lot of work, you are in a social situation, You're you're interacting with your environment, you're actually often very alone, you're very solitary, and all of that, of course, will be reflected in what you write. But similarly, for a historian of West Africa, you know, your interactions with people, communities, uh then the time you spend in various places of course it shapes your perspective and how and, and the things you come to see is important and so what i very, what I very much didn't want this book to be was a a kind of sense that this is the final word this is an objective history uh this is in one of the reviews has said you know it's very it's a personal history in the best sense and that i'm trying to show yes my positionality yes my perspective but also in doing that saying uh, first of all this isn't the final word and and, and secondly that um, that actually, of course, is true of all histories, and and mm-hmm. and, and 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 bringing that into 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 the history that I've written. It's one of the things I
0: thought was really fascinating about your text was because, in a way that you that I've rarely seen in the history books that I've read, you've inserted yourself into it. It's not you know Toby Green's encounter with Africa, you know, throughout the book. It's not it's not a travelogue. but in doing so periodically in your book you you're showing that engagement with it which i as a non-africanist found very fascinating because you're you're showing in a sense how there's all of this material related to the history of africa that we can use to understand africa which we really haven't been tapping into that you do with this book
1: yes i mean i trust you that i and mean, for various reasons firstly you know i take very much to heart the idea that you know the tradition of the Western Academy has been what uh, the uh, philosopher from Cameroon, Achille Mbembe, describes. And I mentioned this in the in the foreword as you know the objective, impartial observer who's able to produce an objective text, regardless of their place in the world. So in in a sense, over and above their positionality, and that's clearly a false perspective. So one of the things I'm doing by inserting myself in 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 into the history is undercutting that is saying actually you know we have to be honest about that we are all individual researchers in a social context. Clearly that shapes what we research and how we think about it. But also, as you say, I think one of the things that, um, that I'm also trying to do in the book is showing through those insertions that actually there are lots of sediments of memory, of social practice, uh, of, of interactions historically, which are, are recorded in societies in various ways which are completely outside of a canon of traditionally accepted historical sources uh, in the West. Uh, and, and those are things which are actually fundamental, not only for retaining or, or reconstituting elements of history, but also, I think, very much for shaping perspectives, you know, what we think of as an important perspective on history. If we're just using... Um, written sources produced in the West, we're going to have a view, I think, as I say in the foreword, that African history in this period, West African history in this period, was all about trade, slavery, warfare, and African-European relations. That will be the sense that that was what was important. If you turn the lens around and look, for example, at oral records, you'll get the perspective that what was really important were kinship relations, uh, genealogies, migration, kingship, religion, uh, and, of course, the reality is, is between the two. So, um... That's why it's very important to have a really broad mix of source materials to to, to to attempt to write a book like this.
0: Now, I'm sure there's a few listeners who are familiar with oral histories and, and and other forms that are you know out there that they use in terms of reconstructing the past. One of the things that makes your book so fascinating, though, was how you're able to draw upon sources that have only recently been collected. And yet in the Those sources you can use to reach. Five hundred years back in the past, in a way that may not necessarily seem to be the case, we, we think of oral history as a person recording their memories, or maybe a person recording stories that speak to a recent past, or maybe a very traditional past. And you're talking about how you can use a lot of these sources to reach to reach back and understand something about something four or five hundred years ago that you wouldn't think work with either of those poles, but are nonetheless very uh, informative and, and, and very insightful.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. And and I think, again, it comes back to uh, one of the things I was talking about just before about, you know, about historical perspectives, about what we consider to be important. You know, is history the production of a factual narrative uh, with levels of analysis and what constitutes a fact? How is a fact recorded? You know, if you spend time in archives, for example, and this is one of the things I find fascinating. You spend time in archives reading documents produced by Portuguese or French or English uh, uh, slave traders. Of course, every time you turn the page, a little bit of the, of the piece of paper fragments and disappears. And that one of the things that's always done to me is made me realize just how tenuous uh, the recollection of the past is. Uh, you know, it's you know, these documents survive by chance. They could have sunk on a ship. Uh, they could have been destroyed in a fire. They could have you know fragmented because of humidity. They're there. And they give us the facts. But of course, they're just some facts. They're not a complete. And, and they have a very partial view of facts because of those factors. Um, so it's, it's an inappropriate approach to think that that is what we, that, 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 that's, that, 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 that is what uh, a, a history of West Africa should be trying to produce. Uh, and then those documents, of course, produce a certain sort of, as I mentioned, a certain type of perspective on what is really supposed to be really important. Now, Oral sources are not necessarily going to produce facts that uh, would be recognised recognised by the historical community. Um, they might do, but they might equally produce fascinating perspectives on 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 what people see and saw as important in those periods, on clothing, uh, on, for example, on um, on what uh, people were on what people were. Um, Sorry, I'm sorry, Mark. I've just had to pause there. That might have to be edited. Um, on clothing, for example, on jewellery, on hair, uh, dress, um, those kinds of things, uh, which were very fundamental to how they saw the importance and perspective of their social, uh, of their social world and their social realms. Uh, and so, that gives a totally different sense of what was really important and fundamental. Uh, to society and to people at that time and, and can really reshape it and give a different perspective on uh, history.
0: I'd like to take us now to some of the insights that are coming out of this m- new material, particularly with regard to West Africa during the period between the 15th and the 17th centuries. What is it that is that this uh, this your material that you're now introducing into our understanding of the history, telling us about this period in Africa and its place in the world?
1: Well, I think that's a very good question, Mark. And, I, and there are a few things that we can pull out uh, here. And I think I'll start with actually the, the role of uh, West African languages in helping us to understand or get a different perspective and different information, different insights into what was happening. So the first example is one I one I use in the book, uh, early in the book, is is from Manning. So and the relationship actually between key words in Manding, so Manding, one of the main languages, the main language uh, of what was the Mali Empire in, in uh, the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. And one of the main languages spoken widely across the greater Senegambian region uh, and the relationship between words uh, to do with trade and credit in Manding and words in Portuguese. So, for example, uh, the word for market in Manding is feire, um, and in Portuguese it is feira. Uh, the word for credit in manding is juro and in portuguese it is juro so already there we're seeing a quite an important connection between uh atlantic trade global trade and the way in which that influenced and, and changed the relationship in commercial exchange in that part of west africa and the relationship between manding traders and portuguese traders another example coming from right at the end of the period if we move ourselves around to um the gold coast or what's now um republic of ghana uh would would come from Akan and and the origins of the of asanti the Asante empire as it was in the 18th century the major uh state in what's now ghana uh and uh the origins of asanti come from uh the Akan phrase asante for asante uh, for means because of war Asante was formed because of war and it was formed through uh, the strength of of the rising militarized state not only in Asante actually but in other parts of West Africa and the relationship between the state and warfare now that's very important and I go on to that in the in the in the second half of the book because it also of course shows some connections between processes of state formation in West Africa and actually processes of state formation in in uh, that period in Europe um, in Europe uh, European historians have this concept of what they call the fiscal military state. What that means is the relationship between the growing importance of the state, taxation and warfare. Actually, you see uh, through Asante 4 and the origins of Asante, very similar uh, structures and forces at play in the rise of uh, of that state in, in in what's now Ghana. So we learn quite a lot just from those few examples, and, and there are many more which you could pull out, but there's quite a lot about both um, pre- process of state formation, relationships between West African polities and uh, Atlantic empires, and also uh, interconnections of trade, commerce, and t- social transformations. Just in those few examples, I could we could talk about many, many more of them, but that's just a, a sense of the flavor of how I try to bring some of those sources into a, the approach I take in the book. One of the things um, that you do with the sources
0: that I really like is that you point out that for too long, the use of the sources that we have previously been employing has led us to see this as a process that was heavily tied to just the European interaction. But as you explain that when you draw upon a wider range of, of sources, you can see how a lot of the state formation predates this. West Africa's involvement in the global economy dates back to what we would you know think of as, you know, characterizing the West as the medieval period with its integration with these Islamic trading networks, or the uh, that existed in uh, Central and Northern Africa in the you know 13th, 14th centuries.
1: Absolutely. So yes, I mean, we, as you say, because of the types of sources which we which tend to have been used in the study of this of of, of this period of history in Africa, uh, and the way that those sources privilege precisely uh, European African interactions, uh, the slave trade, and so forth, you you kind of get a sense that um, that was the fundamental thing which everybody would have been thinking about uh, in 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 West Africa in this period of time, and and by taking, as you say, first of all, by taking ourselves back in time, back. Prior to those engagements and seeing the structures which were already in place, and and also the interactions between, for example, uh, Kano in northern Nigeria, uh, Nupe which was in central Nigeria, and between Nupe and uh, kingdoms like Benin, the famous Benin bronzes were actually interacting with some of those kingdoms. So there were so the trans-Saharan networks which stretched from. Kano, northwards across the Sahara towards Tripoli. Uh, they were also influencing, of course, right down on uh, the Atlantic coastline in the pr- much long prior to um, the arrival of, of, of the Portuguese in the 15th century. And so all of those, uh, those social and political and commercial structures were already um, very much in place. But the other thing I think, which the concentration on um, those European sources does is as I say, it makes, it makes you think that from that point on, everybody was thinking in West Africa, these were the main things that mattered. Of course, they did matter. But one of the things I do in the book at one point is say, well, actually, of course, you know, what were people often thinking about? They were thinking about the new fashions which were coming in, uh, the new types of hairstyle, new jewellery, what they were going to eat tomorrow night, social connection. There are so many aspects of social history, which, of course, those sources simply can tell us absolutely nothing about and which really don't convey the complexity and the richness of the human experience at that time.
0: Perhaps you can uh, now set the stage as to what Africa was like during that period prior to the heavy involvement with uh, European trade. Because I I thought it was very fascinating how that, you know, it's a very different portrait. And it's one that I think really helps to explain just the ways in which trade with Europe does change the region, region, not just in terms of how it you know, changed Europe or how it changed uh, global trade, but how it changed West Africa specifically, which would, which uh, is something that oftentimes gets glossed over uh, in in, in uh,
1: earlier accounts. Sure. So, well, I mean, so West. I mean, West Africa was the first thing to say. West Africa is a huge region. I mean, and and the book. You know, the book is deliberately comparative uh, across a wide region. Obviously, I know some parts of the region better than others. Uh, I mean, I have uh, done research in eight different countries across the region, but, you know, there are many more than that. Um, So that's an important starting point. And and, and I think it's probably at this point worth saying, you know, why take on such a huge canvas? Well, I think there are important reasons for doing that. Um, And the first is that one of the main... Focus, focuses of the book is to try and show how the economic dimension is one of the things which ultimately does begin to provide a common commonality to historical experience across that, across that whole region is actually only by looking across that whole region that you can get a sense of the importance of the economic dimension. But the other is look, you know, just as we know very well from the famous blog, Africa is not a country. We know Africa is not, everybody knows Africa is not a country, but at the same time, um, we have to recognise that that idea of the specificity of every single people comes from colonial era anthropology. Colonial era anthropologists developed this idea of the specificity of ethnicity, and 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 a sense that actually, in a sense, that those kind of comparisons couldn't be made. So, in in one sense, I would say you're damned if if you follow that route, and you're damned if you don't. Uh, it becomes make it creates a very difficult. Um, a framework within which to work as a historian. Uh, but at the same time, we have to recognize, you know, people write comparative histories of all other parts of the world. People write comparative histories of different countries in Europe, in in different parts of Asia, in the Americas. Is it just Africa that that's not possible to do in? And, and if so, why? There's another form of exceptionalism in fact. So that's why the book looks at the whole region. Uh, And it's important to make that clear at this point, Um, but also to to, to answer what your question actually was, which is how, uh, you know, how how, what was that region like? Well, there were important areas of interconnection, as I've mentioned, or, you know, in the previous answer to the previous question, you know, there was an important area of interconnection between, for example, northern Nigeria uh, was connected to, as I've said, through various different uh, trading routes and, and political relationships. Both the central areas of what is now central and southern Nigeria, but also uh, to parts of the northern reaches of what are now the Gold Coast, so the gold trade from the 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 main uh, gold prospecting areas, which are what it was in the forests of what's now uh, southern Ghana. Uh, there were trading routes, important trading routes, north towards what's now Timbuktu in Mali to uh to northern nigeria and those areas were also connected towards senegambia so mali in particular had had strong social and political connections and commercial connections towards senegambia so it's a region which is very has a very broad range of connections which are both commercial, as i've mentioned here but also as you as you mentioned religious Uh, so a lot of that trade is conducted by uh islamic traders who are connected to of course the north trans-saharan trade across to north africa uh and because uh you know this is an incredibly slow dangerous and uh and but also potentially lucrative trade uh it's and and the risks are high and for that reason uh that's one of the reasons some people feel that uh there was a shared religion you know how do you trust somebody who you're trading with say in tripoli who you may never see uh or who you may see once every four or five years uh, and, and a shared religious identity and faith and practice is, of course, a very important part of how that can happen. So Islam emerges as an important gateway, if you like, to this uh, globe, to this trading network, which links not only to North Africa, but of course, also through North Africa to what's now called the Middle East and, and into Asia. Uh, and and so you end up with these. And that's very important because it means that the political elites in West Africa, for them, Islam was an important religion because it offered a gateway for the arrival of new goods, uh, new forms of wealth and so forth. But at the same time, of course, the majority of the vast majority of the, of, of the West African population were not. Uh, so they had to develop a kind of plural religious identity, uh, which um, was an, became an important part of West African political statecraft. Uh, the idea that there could be a sort of pluralism what we would call today, probably multiculturalism uh, within West Africa, particularly within urban spaces in West Africa, and also multilingualism. You know, the fact that this was a very interconnected area, people traveling long distance. In the- to North Africa, but also within West Africa, meant that that kind of plural identity was was actually very important to West African societies, and, and this is an important part of uh, the transformations which also developed, you know, from also from the fifteenth and sixteenth century onwards. One of the most fascinating tools
0: you use to trace what's going on here is following the currencies, and, and it was it, it was interesting for me to think about how you you know, use those to. Talk about various trade networks and how they were using currencies, and, and this is, of course, is, is you know best illustrated by the very title of your book, "A Fistful of Shells," about how it's it's not just the the the, the, the metalism that we are so used to in the West, but you're talking about currency in uh, you know cloth and currency in shells that allows you to identify where these trading networks are. And this is also very important because you then use them to trace the disruptions that take place in the 15th centuries onward.
1: Yes, and that's very important because, uh, as you say, it is, you know, the overarching motif which unites the book together is is the is the focus on currencies, money and the way that that can be traced over time through this long period of time. And it's also very important to emphasise that all of the currencies uh, which begin to be traded by the Portuguese in from the late 15th into the early 16th century onwards are already in place uh, across West Africa. Cowries are already in use as a major currency on the Niger bend. Uh, copper manilas or arm rings are already in use. For iron, cloth, all these things are already in place. So it's not like um, the the Portuguese invented uh, monetary transactions, invented markets in some way by bringing these currencies. No, they they were good imitators. You know, they uh, I think, you know, in a sense, you can we all know really that nothing grows. Nothing starts from scratch. Everything is. Everything develops from what is already there. The Portuguese saw what was happening, saw the commercial realities which are there. And then, you know, because of their mobility, because they had access to maritime routes, which uh, were not so well practiced or known in, in, in other, by other nations, they were able to import huge numbers of, of cowries from the Indian Ocean, which they brought as ballast in their ships, which came back from Goa. They were able then to import large numbers of uh, copper arms manufactured uh, in europe and they imported those and and this of course expanded hugely uh, the currency base uh, in 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 many west African parts. essentially it monetized uh to, to a larger extent than had already been pre- present although those currencies were there that monetization expanded hugely markets expanded hugely and that's been a huge part of the um of the story of uh, pre-colonial west africa in this period from the 16th to the 18th centuries is the impact which that has and and why this is important is you know Well, for various reasons, but a reductive focus on this period of African history through the lens of the transatlantic slave trade uh, means that the wider economic implications of that have have traditionally been lost from that analysis. And actually, that is one of the main foci of the book. As you say, it, it allows to see not only what those trade routes were, how they uh, it, uh, how West African nations interacted with them uh, and were affected by them, but also what the long-term economic uh, disruptive impact of that was.
0: And I, I like your use of the word disruptive because it really gets to the way in which your book argues that we need to properly view what's going on here. It's not as though Africa is just sitting there and then a bunch of Portuguese say, hey, we've discovered you. Instead, what they're doing is they're uh, they're, they're inserting themselves directly into this region and they are then introducing these new linkages across the Atlantic Ocean. and That, of course, is, what, uh, is where we start to see slavery uh, mm-hmm. playing a, a very different role than it previously had. I was wondering if you could perhaps you know, briefly talk about where slavery fits into this both prior to this uh, period of the you know, emergence of the transatlantic trade and then how that changes a lot of what's going on within West Africa.
1: Oh, well, that could be a whole new interview, Mark. <laughs> um, well, Be brief, I mean, concise,
0: I, and specific.
1: Yeah, if I can try to do that. Um, well, I, I think the first thing is, is to recognise the, um, the impact of using the concept of slavery. Slavery, uh, to the English speaker, to the Western mind, implies a certain set of relations, which actually uh, is inappropriate for thinking about uh, West Africa prior to European contact. Uh, what is called... Slavery in those eras were, were forms of dependence, uh, economic, social, political, uh, but they were not the same form of dependence as the concept of slavery, which has, as it emerged in the, in the Americas implies, which is a certain form of legal, you know, the idea of chattel slavery, uh, the, the, the legal position of, position of slaves in American societies, in colonial American societies, uh, which is very, very different to the forms of slavery that you had in West Africa prior to the 15th and 16th centuries. A number of scholars uh, wrote about that actually a long time ago. So Walter Rodney, um, one of the founding historians who worked on this region of pre-colonial Africa uh, before he wrote his, his landmark book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, sh- argued in one of his first um, academic articles that uh, that there was no slavery as slavery in, that, in the region of Senegambia as we would call it today, as, as we call slavery today, prior to Portuguese arrival. And he used various numbers of sources to, to, to look at that. We're talking about human relationships of dependence, often in times of drought, warfare, uh, and often in terms of out, insiders and outsiders. So many people, uh, quote, slaves uh, in West African societies were really were, were outsiders to the communities in which they lived. They had no... They often might have been war captives or they might have migrated in times of drought. They wouldn't necessarily have had kinship connections uh, within their communities. And so they were incorporated within uh, as uh, members of a community, but as members of a community who didn't have certain rights, essentially. However, of course, their children who had been born in that community, would therefore be able to develop, had cert- had be- by virtue of that uh, kinship connections and would begin to develop more community rights. So it was a way. It was a, it was an institution really, which allowed societies to expand and to develop more members over time. Uh, and that's of you know in the way in which I described that, you can see that that's a very different institution uh, to the institution of slavery in in the Americas. Um, now, over the one of the fascinating things and one of the very important things I think about this is that over the period then from the fifth, late fifteenth to into the nineteenth century, one of the real transformations in Africa is that. Slavery as a relationship of dependence becomes more and more like uh, the institution as it's known in the Americas. And by the 19th century, um, you have uh, Rodney wrote about this and Paul Lovejoy has, has more recently written about this re- with relationship to the Sokoto Caliphate in, in Nigeria in the 19th century. How the plantations there and the relationship and the relationships there of dependency and of labor were much more akin to American uh, systems of relationship by that time. So there is actually a real transformation in slavery uh, in Africa over this period of time. And it is clearly related to the global connections which Africa has with the Atlantic world.
0: You use a phrase in the book that I I just thought was just so, uh, you know, Nicely chosen for it, which is the commercialization of people and and how that you speak that that, I thought that so nicely encapsulated what's happening with the institution of slavery during uh, this period that you're studying.
1: Absolutely. And that's another aspect. So, yes, thank you for prompting me on that. Yes, that's another aspect. We have to recognize that over time, as this relationship between Atlantic slavery and relationships of dependence in Africa becomes more and more intertwined. So in the 16th century, but particularly when you get to the latter part of the 17th century, from that point on you know human beings become as you say they're commercialized they become forms of capital forms of uh, stores of capital from the labor which they're going to be able to produce uh, and through the exchange uh, of those bodies uh, which uh, enables enables the atlantic system to function and this uh, this the, this reality that human beings became forms of currency became commercialized is you know i think really emphasizes the moral quote in quote or immoral transformations with the transatlantic slave trade implanted in human societies and how you know just how far and how deeply uh, those transformations affected people i mean there can be no more base transformation than that and that was something that commercialization which emerged from the influence which the americas was having within west african societies and the ways in which in order to access capital african societies then were required to transform their own relationships of human interdependence and dependence in 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 this era now you divided
0: the book into two parts we've we've spent uh some time now just you know covering the first uh, part of the book, which is where you're talking about the West Africa during the fifteenth and seventeenth centuries, and the second part is when you're discussing West Africa in the eighteenth century. But obviously, as you make clear, it's it's not as though there's this you know sharp dividing line that separates the two. That we're talking about a period of transition, and one of the things you do is you talk about how the Kingdom of Congo, in particular, is a good example of that transition uh, taking place you know, during the, in particular, the late 17th through the early 18th centuries. I was wondering if you could perhaps it, it, it sort of explain how the, the microcosm that that is of this evolution that's taking place between the period that you spend talking about the first half of the book uh, and the period you spend talking about the second half of the book.
1: Okay, so that's a very, good, a very important question. So, yes, I mean, first of all, just to set a scene of why why this transition. So, as you say, I, I talk about transition from really the 1670s, 80s onwards into the early 18th century. Why that period? Because it's in that period that you have a fundamental uh, transition in terms of trade and and in terms of currency. So until that time, the the greatest value being exported from Africa was still largely actually the gold uh, uh, in terms of capital value, which came from uh, the Gold Coast largely, but also from Senegambia. Uh, And 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 um, it was after that time that you have this transition and 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 the transatlantic slave trade expands immensely, uh, and you and you have this huge transformation and this commercialization of people as we were just talking about. What you also have, and this is why the the global geopolitical aspect is so relevant to understanding the impact in Africa, is in the 1690s, you have this huge gold strike in Brazil. In what's now in Minas Gerais, the general mines uh, in Belo Horizonte, what's now the Belo Horizonte region of, of Brazil, uh, and that means that the, the 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 capital dynamics of the Atlantic are completely transformed through that gold strike, uh, and that also has an influence in um, in 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 West Africa, of course. Uh, now Congo lived through the kind of things which then emerged in the 18th century. In a way earlier and the reason for that it was is that it was the region of what's now angola and the, and the kingdom of congo was located in the north of what's now angola um it was that region which really witnessed the impacts of the transatlantic slave trade which became so immense from the late 17th and into the eighteenth century everywhere else but earlier so they witnessed that from the late 16th century through to the late 17th century congo which had been a, a, a powerful kingdom before the arrival of the Portuguese in the late 15th century. Uh, its many Congos, its its rulers, had, conver- had converted to Christianity. Uh, there had been a, a substantial trading presence, a substantial trade not only in, in captives in the 16th century, but also in cloths, which were woven in Congo and were highly prized. Um, but once the Portuguese founded Luanda in 1575... Uh, Warfare became endemic to the south of Congo. Uh, Actually, also, there is a a climate element here. Desertification uh, grew into the 17th century. Warfare increased. And the transatlantic slave trade boomed hugely, what some historians call an Angolan wave of captives coming from uh, Angola, what's now Angola, into the Americas. And and the inequalities which encapsulated that, and the instability, political but also uh, geographical, uh, climatic, which were happening at that time, uh, created more and more resentment against uh, the rulers of uh, of Congo. And, and and in the 1665, uh, the kingdom of Congo was defeated by the Portuguese in a major battle at Mwila, uh, and and the Congo. De- uh, descended into civil war for the next forty years, essentially, and 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 what had been a powerful kingdom fragmented, and ultimate, ultimately, although it re, re, re remained in a residue, uh, a core in the earlier in the eighteenth century, it's all its old power had gone, and, and that really encapsulates in many ways what happened in the eighteenth century in many other parts of West Africa. So you have this sense of the growing inequalities, uh, growing divisions between rulers and subjects, and then at the end of the eighteenth century, you have a huge uh, wave of Civil wars, insurrections against the aristocracy and their overthrow.
0: I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate just a little bit upon that. Uh- the, uh, on what forces are driving this? So you've already described how we're, we're talking about these economically disruptive forces, but you've also introduced some other aspects which play a role. Well, for example, we're talking about how uh, you're, you're seeing uh, religions playing a uh, a a, a somewhat different role. You're talking about the growing centralization of power and how that's disruptive. How are all these things contributing to this? issue of inequality. And are we just talking about internal inequality? Or are we talking about Africa, this region of Africa, relative to the rest of the world?
1: We're talking about both, actually. So let's take, let's take the first two. Let's take the first uh, of those cases, you know, what's happening within West African societies. So um, as I mentioned before, actually, there's this relationship in terms of state building between taxation uh, a growing state and, and and militarization. And that's called a fiscal military state for historians of Europe. But we can actually see very similar processes happening in Africa, analogous processes happening in Africa. One of the reasons that historians have, have not focused in this, on this before is because there has been within this economic historiography um, an idea that these currencies, cowries, manilas, and so on and not um, is, are not real currencies they were known as primitive currencies and so the idea that this was an important process of fiscalization and taxation was never taken seriously but actually we 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 see very clearly uh, from the sources that uh, by the time you get to the 18th century states like Oyo in in what's now southern nigeria uh, dahomey in benin these were states which had important taxation systems on the cowrie trade used those cowries to fiscalize to procure weapons, for example, and to centralize power. And so what you have is the centralization of power, just as you have in European states in the same period, uh the centralization of power, the monopoly of violence uh through the state, uh, the growth of armies, and of course, when armies grow, you know, there's no point in having an army if it's not going to fight wars. And so the increase in warfare. Of course, um, exactly the same processes happened in Europe in the same period which is an incredibly bloody period full of rife with warfare known to be um and so it's it's very ironic that when in the by the late 18th century people uh people in Britain uh, abolitionists and uh those who wanted to maintain the slave trade were writing about Africa at this time they 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 used this warfare as an example of how the slave trade had uh, driven Africa into the ground. Of course, this warfare was a byproduct of the state formation process in Africa as it had been in Europe. Um, but the difference, and the fundamental difference is, I think, that uh, within was that centralization of power, it was, as you mentioned, uh, Mark, related to the centralization of religion. So whereas religious uh, shrines in many parts of West Africa had often been localised, uh, related to households or specific pieces of land, uh, in Dahomey, which is a very good example of this, that Localised religious practice, after Dahomey emerged as a really powerful state in the 1720s and 1730s, was centralised among certain cults like the Leopard Cult, Agassou, in the capital. Uh, And it became also, because it was associated with that centralization, it was also associated with the state and with the monopoly of violence which the state held, which was related to the transatlantic slave trade. So all those forces were becoming combined, growing on the one hand, centralization of power within uh, a state such as Dahomey, uh, which saw complete control of violence and the and, the, and monopoly of violence, which states always uh, held. But on the other hand, the relationship which that had to the export of captives, uh, often there might be subjects. Uh, and, and that created a growing division between that ruling class and the subjects within a state such as Dahomey. And a sense also that the religious power and autonomy which people had had, had also uh, gone to the capital at Abome and made people more open to other forms of religious practice. And that's how also religious transformations began to uh, provide a vehicle for uh, for insurrections when they came in the late 18th and into the, into the early 19th centuries.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: <laughs> well, Mark um, – this book took a long time. (laughs) And uh, I, I, what I'm working on now is, is, is recharging my batteries so that I can take up a new project within the next year or two.
0: Well, I look forward to finding out what that new project is when you settle upon it, because if it's half as good as this one here, it's going to be another very fascinating read.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. I've enjoyed it very much.
0: Uh, Toby, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.